Ladies and gentlemen, this is El Cochino, Tom Lawler, and I'd like to welcome you to the podcast that puts the lotion on its own skin, Lucha World. Bitchin'. Welcome everyone to Lucha World Podcast, episode number 122. Fredo Esparza here, and this week I am going to discuss the Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame, the 2020 edition, as I have a ballot this year, much like last year. Um, last year I did a podcast, but it was on um, Patreon for the retro wrestling podcast that I do on there. Um, but this, this year, since most of my ballot is lucha related and so was last year but more so this year uh, because it's very there's at least some slight difference i figured i would put it up on this podcast since um it's different you know usually for about four or five years um, we discussed whenever i would do a podcast about the hall of fame be it on here or you know when i was guest appearing on some other podcasts um, it was always like the same group of luchadors and this year there's a, a little bit of a difference just because so many guys went in in 2019 like ultimo guerrero uh, i think viano tercero was one of the other people and i think there were a total of four to five probably four luchadors um obviously including misioneros de la muerte um that made it into the the observer hall of fame so that kind of emptied out a little bit and so this year there were a few more um new names added to the ballot and a few of them actually made my ballot as as my picks. Slightly different from last year, my um, ballot, but pretty much about the same. I focus more on Lucha Libre because obviously being a Lucha fan and researching a lot of Lucha Libre over the past couple of years, especially now that I do a lot of stuff for um, not just for Lucha World, but on the Patreon site as well. I'm doing the Lucha Magazine write-ups. I figured I would do this uh, a little bit different. Well, I wouldn't say it's different, more so the fact that now I have a little bit more, you know, it's always good as you do research, you get a little more of an understanding about the history of pro wrestling and you get to learn more about certain wrestlers and uh, what they were really like. And also there's so much more um, video available with, you know, YouTube, WWE Network, that you could see a little bit more of that. Even like, even with um, Luchadors, um, there's been a few Luchadors have that I've seen on um WWE Network through um, World Class and a couple of the other promotions that have brought in luchadors in the past that have actually made it onto YouTube. The Houston stuff, there's a lot of stuff from Houston that has 
popped up from the NWA. I think one of the, I think it was when the NWA uncovered a lot of that stuff. Not Billy Corgan, but the person before that. Um, they actually, someone actually uploaded a lot of that stuff. So you actually see a lot of, you know, a lot of the luchadors in Texas. So you kind of get more, you know, a lot of the guys that we didn't get to see because there's very little footage of Lucha Libre prior to the 90s from the 70s, 80s and beyond. There isn't that much. So just getting a little bit more from what they did in the United States in Texas primarily, it's added a little bit more of an, of a, you know, more, more, more ways to find out a little bit more about what the wrestlers were like. I mean, Rene Guajardo, I had never, I don't think I had ever seen him wrestle prior to um, seeing him on world class against um, El Solitario on one of the, I think it was one of the, the, the Fritz von Erich retirement show. Um, they had a match and he's, he was really an excellent wrestler. And this is, this is Rene Guajardo in 1981, 82, 82. And it's like, you know, you got to remember his prime years were like, the 60s and and he was still looking very good in the ring so that just goes to show how how talented some of the wrestlers were and i i think that's that's something that has has kind of helped some of the i think that's probably what helped Rene Guajardo that making it into the the hall of fame so early on was that you know some dave Meltzer and other not only did they have the the history behind what he had done but they had also um had a chance to see him in texas uh even though it was late in later in his career they got to see him and you know that kind of helped. So that's actually helped quite a bit. This year, I voted for ten wrestlers. In my, I picked ten wrestlers for my ballot, and five non-wrestlers were also as part included in my ballot. Um, usually, that's I try to go with the. Honestly, since I've been voting, I've only been voting the last couple, two years. It's there's been enough people for me to consider um, worthy candidates that I would definitely pick vote for. It's not like it's not like suddenly there's nobody on there that I wouldn't vote for. Um, just because and you know, I do know that I've heard a lot of people talk about their ballots and they there's been a few like Mike Tanay, who was on the Observer um, radio podcast in the last couple of weeks, couple of days, he's kind of mentioned that he's had certain times when he sent in his um, ballot and he hasn't had that many people that he voted for just because he didn't think they were, um, were um, they were like, there wasn't as, as many people that he considered Hall of Fame level. Um, I kind of view it a little differently just because, and everybody kind of does. I think there's plenty of wrestlers that I think are Hall of Fame worthy, but there, there's also, I think all of us have a certain um, line that will, you know, that's the Hall of Fame. And then everybody's just like either really good and isn't necessarily Hall of Fame worthy. Um, so I guess I'll go through my ballot. If this show is only 30 minutes long, I apologize, but I figured this would be something fun to talk about. The first category is the I Followed the Modern Performers in U.S. Canada and Canada Candidates. There's an actual other um, ballot. Before that category, there is the I Followed the Historical Performers Era Candidates. Um, I didn't vote for anybody on that, so but I'll get back to that later on if we have some time, um, just because on it I didn't I really didn't think anybody was at that level. I could that could always change um, down the road, just because like I said, as you get to learn more about certain wrestlers, their value kind of either increases or decreases or stays the same. And uh, for a few of the guys on the on the historical er, um, era, 
I would say there's a few that I think have gotten kind of closer just because I had never really seen a lot of their work early on. And some of that I have seen that have definitely greatly improved their odds of me considering to vote for them later on. Uh, but as far as the the modern performers from the U.S. and Canada, my vote this year went to Sergeant Slaughter. It really came down in this category between Sergeant Slaughter, Junkyard Dog, and Kerry Von Erich. Last year, I voted for Kerry Von Erich. Junkyard Dog was kind of like pretty close to Kerry. The only difference between the two is that um, I kind of thought Kerry was a bigger star. And like I said, I was I I, I lived in the during the 80s, I lived in Texas, so I kind of knew a little bit more about Kerry Von Erich at that time. Uh, I kind of started watching Junkyard Dog when he was kind of, when he joined WWE, and he wasn't at that point in time quite the level of worker, whereas Kerry I kind of saw before that, and, you know, he was really, really, you know, the Von Erich family was extremely popular, not just um, as wrestlers in Texas, but also as kind of like a cultural phenomena in Texas, very similar to what a lot of luchadors you get from luchadors in Mexico, like El Santo, not quite at that level, but, you know, pretty high up there. Um, but this year, as I said, I voted for Sergeant Slaughter. And the reason I did was I've been watching a lot of Sergeant Slaughter the last couple of like since. And he was somebody I was considering last year. He was kind of around the time that I sent in my ballot was around the time I started watching a lot of Sergeant Slaughter's work. And I got to say, he's been he's been amazing, a great all around performer. I first saw Sergeant Slaughter later in his career. So um, really when he was in, you know, the whole G.I. Joe thing. So he was more to me just a, a huge star and a character than anything like a like a cartoon type of character, which you kind of had that with a lot of the WWF guys at that time, like Hulk Hogan, Junkyard Dog, um, Hillbilly Jim, Jimmy Snuka, the list of those guys kind of. Iron Sheik, Slaughter kind of fell into that group for me at that point in time because he was kind of, like I said, he was in G.I. Joe and all that stuff. So um, he had his own action figure, not just G.I. Joe, but also, you know, as, as a wrestler. But more importantly, the G.I. Joe action figure and being in the cartoon was such a huge deal. And um, but I mostly just thought of him in that at that level, which that alone is impressive. But then once I started watching a lot of his earlier stuff, before he turned babyface and he was more, more of a heel, um, the guy is incredible at, in the ring as well. He's very good on the mic also, um, very good at cutting promos. Um, he, he's one of those guys that actually can, um, he would throw in a little bit of humor into his um, promos since he's being a serious drill instructor, um, drill sergeant, that it, it, you would, it, it kind of came off a little bit... Um, comedic at certain points but he could always get in the whole seriousness of it but um, in the ring he was outstanding for a big guy he was really good at bumping and he could actually wrestle that was the other thing I I, I kind of um, I was more familiar with him mostly being a brawler but um, there were times that I've seen him on, on Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling where he's working against somebody who's more of a, a technical wrestler and because he's he's kind of trying to like show off his technical ability. He's he does the, do a few um a little bit of mat wrestling, uh, but for the most part, it's very much just a, a brawling style that he has. But very very aggressive, and I thought he was awesome. He 
as a heel. Um, also, he had an incredible WWF run early on. Um, his matches with um, Pat Patterson, um, so many other um, wrestlers that he had great matches with in, in WWF. And then later on, as you go along, his AWA stuff, even some of his AWA stuff, I saw him wrestle Stan Hansen, and that match was fantastic too. I think it was like a 14, 15 minute match, but just a terrific brawl. Um, so, you know, it's very different when you watch a wrestler when you're a kid. And you're not really thinking about work rate. You just think he's tough or awesome or cool. And you don't really think about the other stuff that he's doing. You don't really like put a much thought into it. Um, but now once I started watching all this stuff, you start to realize that this guy was very, very talented. Um, also, he had the, the heel run later in his career uh, feuding against Hulk Hogan. So to me, he had enough a 12 to 13 year period where he was an outstanding wrestler. A couple of years where he, you know, because he was a G.I. Joe and he was kind of like, you know, living off of being a, a more of a, a bigger celebrity, uh, a, a mainstream media celebrity. Um, he maybe didn't do as much for a couple of years, especially later in the when the AWA kind of started to fall apart. Um, but, you know, the rest of the stuff, he was outstanding. Um, but so he was the one person I voted for from the modern performers in U.S. and Canada. Um, the next category was the I Follow Wrestling in Japan candidates. And in this one, I last year I voted for Akira Tawe, and this year I voted for him again. And but this year I added a second pick, and it, that was Jun Akiyama. Um, this is probably more so my bias towards all Japan pro wrestling from the '90s, which is an amazing um, era of, of of pro wrestling. If you have never watched 1990s all Japan pro wrestling, I don't know what you've been wa- doing as far as watching wrestling, um, because that is by far one of my favorite eras i'm a big fan of that the style that they used um you know it's unfortunate that it's a style that was very rough as well but you know as far as just being a fan it's something that i really enjoyed and akira Tawe, one of the four pillars of all japan pro wrestling um you know i think a lot of people kind of always viewed him as the fourth guy in this in that group behind masawa kawada and kobashi uh, because you know those guys were a little bit flashier and they did a little bit more but um, Tawe was awesome. Um, the choke slam. Every time he went for that choke slam, you knew something. You know he was going to go for it, and it, it kind of got a lot of um, the crowd response to it. Was always great. So to me, Tawe was just. You know he may have not been at the level of those three, but he was still pretty darn good. To me, it's kind of like Tawe. To me, was always kind of like that. Just the consistent good wrestler. Um, he knew how to. And, you know, it's one, like, it's always like when people talk about he wasn't that great. I mean, you watch those matches, the tag matches, the six-man tags. He is very much a big part of those matches. Um, it isn't, he's not hiding in those matches. He's not being, no one is covering up for him or making, you know, you know, making him look good. He actually does some stuff that helps himself and makes everybody else look good. Um, there's no slowdown in those tag or six-man tags that they they were a part of. Um, they're just, he's he very much is a big part of that. Um there's been a few people that have had a debates about who is the best of the four pillars. And, you know, obviously people start, um, but honestly you could go with any four and you'd be, you know, you can't go wrong with any of them. Um, it's, it's really, I think, I think people will always pick Masawa or Kobashi as the top one and maybe throwing Kawada as uh, some people will go with Kawada and Tawe will always kind of be like the fourth, but Tawe, you know, he was awesome. And, you know, if, if you're going to go as far as um, hall of fame, level in an era and you know how like certain promotions have a handful of guys it's kind of like kind of like baseball 
if you have a or 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 football or basketball where you're you have a a team that dominates a decade or or a a, a certain period of time and you put into the hall of fame obviously like it's kind of like i'll use the example like the 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 los angeles lakers or boston celtics of the 80s um each of those teams had three to four great players and you know you're not gonna like just because someone was like the third or fourth best doesn't necessarily mean he doesn't deserve to be in the hall of fame because odds are what he was doing at that time was very high level um high end like if you look at the at the at the lakers they had james worthy as their third guy in the 80s and he's very much a hall of famer you look at the celtics robert Parrish was a huge huge um one of the top centers during the 80s and definitely like nobody would ever put him down as as one of the greats during that time period so i think i think Towie for me that's that's how i view him um that that great other player in 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 all japan pro wrestling and akiyama i mean he came in a little bit afterwards but very much a big part of um all japan late the, the late 90s run from 96 forward the guy was awesome tag team wrestler singles wrestler everything he was great at um, pretty much he followed the continued the tradition of the four pillars and you know then he when when the whole split came and he was like the main guy in noah he was still very good you know one of those guys that he comes in and that's not just for noah but like when they started doing all those shows where he would show up for other promotions uh, they would announce akiyama as one of the challengers to whoever was the 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 guy who was going to wrestle from that either new japan or later on all japan and you were really looking forward to that match because that was something that was uh, something new and you knew what akiyama's reputation was and also he had a very long career where he's been one of the top workers great wrestlers in in, in japan um i i i i i had to vote for him he's 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 amazing and then there's the next category which was uh, i followed wrestling in mexico candidates and this one um we actually got a couple of people into the hall of fame last year and this year they added some new faces into the 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 ballot and there were a few of them that i actually immediately considered just because i think they definitely deserve it medico assassino was on my list wasn't was one of my picks and you know, one of the top stars in the 1950s, one of the first TV stars of, of, of Lucha Libre in Mexico. Um, if he had not passed away at such a young age, um, I think he passed away at, at age 40 or so. Yeah, at age, at, at age 40, coming into his age 40, um, he, he would have been a huge, like he would have been, I think that's what's happened. He's kind of become the forgotten legend of lucha libre because he was a heavyweight and really like a lot of the the remembering of of the legends of the past there's a lot of connection that a lot of the promotions like especially cml which brings it up a lot more because they're the promotion that has the connection to that uh, whereas triple a is more connected to the you know what they started and what they've done with their um with their promotion in the last 25 27 years um it's it with 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 CMLL when they bring up like who's held t- titles, it very much focused into welterweight the welterweight division, and with Medico Asesino you don't hear much about him because he was a heavyweight, and that's not a that wasn't the the prestigious division of um, lucha libre. It 
you know the welterweight division has become continued to become the more the more popular the more um where all the bigger stars are at um either at for most of their career or for much of their career because a lot of the guys stay at that low at that weight class you also get that a little bit more with the middleweights and then um as the weight class starts to to increase it kind of you don't get that same um uh, remembrance of the legends from the past um, but Medico Asesino was one of the first TV stars being part of Televicentro that promotion and obviously later on he not only was he a star in Mexico but also in Texas um, got to wrestle Lutez four times um, for the NWA World Heavyweight title and so that alone right there kind of tells you how big of a star and how big of an impact he had next pick I had was Los Brazos Brazo de Oro, Brazo de Plata, and El Brazo. To me, those guys are, are, are you know, if you're going to have Los Misioneros de la Muerte in the Hall of Fame, Los Brazos also belong. I think I think a lot of people kind of might dismiss them because they're not as familiar with what they did. But, I mean, they were a headline act as a, as a trio in Mexico, especially later in UWA's run from, like, the late 80s. Big time. Their feud with the Vianos was huge. Not only... Um, what they did with UWA, but later on with EMLL and later CMLL, they had a lot of, um, uh, they were just one of those great trios. Super Porky kind of gets a little bit more of um, the, the praise because he was, you know, of his charisma. And, you know, really he's kind of like the one who kind of remained as one of the top stars in CMLL still later in his career um, until he started having to, um, suffering from health issues. But, uh, and obviously his brother's passing away a little bit um, sooner, but, and actually, even like Brasso de Oro retired, at, semi-retired. I mean, he didn't really like retire because he was still kind of having occasional matches. Um, but you know, you still had those Brassos who were awesome. Um, I still remember when when they would um, tour around northern Mexico, and they would always make their way to Juarez, and how much hype there was behind the Juarez, um, the Los Brassos showing up in Juarez and, and having some pretty great. Um, trios matches uh they you know they had some great trios matches with like los infernales uh misioneros like i said villanos um, los bucaneros were also another um, great rivalry that they had in 89 um just a lot of and they even wrestled the the, the guerrero family a couple of times in, in emll and also i'm sure they wrestled elsewhere i'm pretty sure they wrestled even in, in juarez a few times but um a great trio they headlined a few shows as well so they're they're not a they're not some trio that just uh, randomly belongs. Um, I think they also had the, the time together as well. Um, that's one of the things I kind of like was when looking at tag teams or trios that get nominated or, or are candidates for the Hall of Fame. You also kind of have to con- consider longevity. And these guys had that. Um, Brasso de Oro and Brasso de Plata were together since probably like 1980. And then um, Brasso joined them. I think two years later or two, three years later when they finally formed the trio. So, you know, definitely there, I do think they were, they're definitely hall of fame worthy. But like I said, that's one of the things that, um, unless you've actually like researched, it's very, it's very hard for a lot of people to vote for, um, people in the Mexico section, because I think a lot of it comes down to the eye test and, for whatever reason, it takes a lot longer for certain people to get in. and I, I, But I do think Los Brazos belong. Um, Caristico is my next pick. And um, I think for the most part, the majority of fans who would vote in this category would have at least either been 
experience the mystical era where they actually got to see what it was all about or at the very least there's enough footage available where they've at least watched it and they're a little more familiar with it or they've actually heard stories about how just how big the mystical boom was um really the last big boom in lucha libre in, in mexico i mean this guy was like a, a top draw like a huge star and not just as far as when you look at mexico but somebody who was you know you know considered a big star internationally uh, people outside of mexico kind of viewed him as a big star and you know he was a big draw not just in, in mexico city but throughout mexico i think that wwe run hurts him but at the same time i don't think it should hurt him there's so many other people that have been that went through wwe and didn't succeed that are on this um on this ballot and it's i kind of think that at certain points you have to look at whether or not what happened in wwe what outweighs that more um the what was it the four or five years where he was the top draw not just mexico but if you look at top draw as far as somebody around the world uh, and you look at the numbers he was putting up compare compare them to people at, at the same point in time in wwe or or in japan anywhere else in the united states or anywhere else um he was still he was always like a very like top he was very high on the list and you know does that outweigh what he did in wwe where he kind of just completely fell up it was it was horrible a horrible run partly wwe's fault but also partly his own fault and that's happened to a lot of luchadors that have gone to um wwe but you know to be fair i mean other than Rey mysterio uh i don't really see anybody else who's having this incredible success in, in wwe i mean even like somebody like alberto patron has that and he spoke english he's kind he really he had a, a pretty good run, but because of his own his own ego, it's kind of also hurt him. And, you know, not just his fault, but also WWE. So that's kind of like been an issue with a lot of the luchadors when they go to WWE. And also, you know, honestly, I don't think WWE really gives these guys, or not just even WWE, any promotion in the United States, doesn't give these guys the same opportunity that they would give somebody who is an English-speaking um, wrestler they they seem to like not realize that a lot of times some of these guys are able to like i mean and even if you look at caristico when he was when he was seen cara he was still very popular with the fans it really took once ww soured on him they kind of pretty much lost interest in him he was still very popular with the fans um it really came down once you know the whole thing where he, he suffered that injury against alberto and you know they just cast him away and that was basically the end of it but um i mean i don't think that was a very like it wasn't a particularly long run that was a a, a disaster in wwe because uh, once he got out and he went you know first to triple a and then came back to cmll since coming back to cmll he's very much redeemed himself as far as a as far as being a star the one flaw that he has is that he's joining cmll at a point where their programming department is kind of not at the level and they're really not very good and they've kind of hurt themselves cml has really hurt themselves by just losing so much talent and also they've focused they've been kind of out of focus the programming department for the past couple of years where they're just like they're just throwing anything on the onto the wall to make it to see what sticks and unfortunately they just their talent level has really really dropped in the last three years and um 
that's been unfortunate and it's hurt Caristico and he's always asked about being given the ball again and and, and trying to elevate CML all again see if he could bring up bring bring a boom and I think he can I mean there's been points where he's done you know the the, the match with Pentagon Jr. kind of proves that if you put Caristico against somebody who's special that isn't from CMLL or maybe even like somebody from CML that's a little bit just just something different it could draw um I think it'll it, it still will happen um right now they're t- having them team up with the current Mystico and that tag team I think that tag team can can draw well because people want to see that tag team and then at some point they're going to want to see the breakup and the eventual big mass match between the two and I think they CML really should build to that they have enough time where they could actually do it. Unfortunately, with the pandemic that's going on right now, in a way, it may have helped them because they could just keep focusing on on Caristico and Mystico as a tag team. And you know, they're doing more tag team wrestling of late because of the they're they're not filling out their um, their shows with. They got rid of one match. It's basically five matches on, on a show every so while. I mean, the anniversary had seven matches, but um, the the regular Friday shows have five matches. And depending, also depending on tournaments, I should mention also if there's tournaments, they obviously go far further, longer, more matches. But usually it's it's five matches, and and then they'll they'll um they'll in the past usually we we would get so many trios matches, but right now we're seeing more singles and tag matches. So right now is a good time for them to start building up Caristico and Mystico as a very um, formidable tag team. And, you know, maybe down the line when they do eventually do the breakup and there's fans finally attending shows, that could become the big um, the big build-up to a, a big mass match at an anniversary show, uh, which I think would actually sell out Arena Mexico. It would probably be a big deal. Obviously, I think Caristico would have to win that. But at least that would be the big match that would seal his, um, his um, legacy and would probably seal his Hall of Fame um, candidacy. I also voted for Sangre Chicana. One of the top stars from the late 70s all the way through the the early 90s. Um, one of the best brawlers of all time in not just Lucha Libre, but in pro re- professional wrestling. And what I believe of him as being a great brawler is that he not only would, you know, get a lot of offense, but he was very good at selling and bumping for his opponents. So the brawl would actually be so much cooler because he there was actually a little bit more of a, you know, it wasn't just one-sided. There was, you know, there, there was always a two, uh, you know, each side would get an opportunity. Very similar to like Terry Funk in that way where, you know, it wasn't, he would, he would, he would be a terrific brawler, but he would always give, give and take a little bit in, in a match. Um, it wasn't just all take something that a lot that was more of common with Bruiser Brody as a brawler. Um, but Sangre Chicano was awesome. Um, great feuds with Paraguayo, MS Uno. There's so many guys. Uh, one of the top middleweights in professional wrestling early in his career. Then he became a light heavyweight. Just And, you know, what was so awesome, also feuds with Satanico. What was so cool about him is that when he would step into the ring, you knew, you know, something was going to happen because you could get that. He was one of those, you know, certain wrestlers, when they step into the ring, into the into the arena, um, they bring in a certain energy, and you get that buzz, that feel. And he was one of those guys. I think what hurts Sangre Chicana is that he still continued to wrestle later in his career, and he was a lot older, a lot slower, and a lot of people kind of like started talking about, you know, the the more there was more talk about him not being a very good wrestler. Um, by this, I mean that, you know, in Mexico, a lot of people believe that the only good wrestlers are wrestlers that are mat wrestlers or wrestlers that know Yaveo. 
um, the, the Yaveo style, which is, you know, holds. And um, they frown upon high-flying wrestlers and brawlers. And a lot of times, a lot of those brawlers aren't just brawlers. They could actually do a lot of the other stuff. But they're, you know, they make their money bleeding and, um, you know, and brawling. And that's what, you know, that's what pays the rent. And that's what they do. And people kind of forget about, like, you know, they kind of dismiss that. But that's another style of pro wrestling. And he did it very well. Um, the MNSA Uno matches are fantastic. That alone should get him into the Hall of Fame. The other thing is that if you go back to about from 78 to up until like 82, 83, there was always a big debate as to who was the best wrestler in Mexico at that point in time. Since Mil Mascaras was more of a traveling wrestler, so he wasn't necessarily uh, a a guy who was, you know, all the time in Mexico. He was usually in the United States or in Japan at that during that time period. Um, but with with the, the the three guys who always were in the debate as who who was the best wrestler or the top star in Mexico was always it, it came down to Paraguayo, Sangre Chicana, and, and Canek. Those were the three guys that everybody would. That was a big debate. Which one of these guys is the best wrestler in Mexico? Solitario was more of a, a another wrestler that was more of a traveling wrestler at that point in time, where he was more, you know, not just wrestling in Mexico, but also in the United States and in Japan and other parts of the world. Uh, but you know, with these, with them three, it was always the big debate between those three. Solitario was kind of like the other guy that was thro- thrown in there, but those three were always the ones discussed as far as like the bigger um, stars. And Chicano was awesome. I, I think he definitely belongs. My next pick was Karloff Lagarde, without a doubt. I mean, the guy was one of the more dominant wrestlers in the 60s, uh, one of the top welterweights in Lucha Libre history. You know, when you when they start rolling out the, the doing the roll call of all the welterweights, when CML does that, when there's a big welterweight title match, and they start matching um, Karloff Lagarde and Gory Guerrero, El Santo, Blue Demon, everybody that they bring up, from the past, you start to hear about, and then you, you know, Karloff Lagarde, you look at his career. Um, this was a guy who was one of, all in the 60s, was considered one of the best wrestlers in Mexico. One of the things that goes against him is that there's not, there's no footage, you really nothing, unless I think there's some, maybe some movie clips that he was maybe in, like the, the highlight reel type of, type of deal that they would do. Um, but there really isn't a lot of footage, and that obviously, obviously would hurt him. And also, a lot of the magazine stuff there's not like during the during the 60s because a lot of the the magazines mostly focus in mexico city or mexico state um and they would only sporadically mention maybe monterey um, guadalajara and you know north tijuana juarez the northern region of mexico would get less coverage than those mexico city and mexico state so a lot of the guys who maybe would work for EMLL, they might work 40 or 50 shows during the year in Mexico City or, you know, Puebla, the ones, those the two places that would get a lot of um, coverage um, or get upcoming show results, but you wouldn't get anywhere else. Um, but once you start realizing that there's there, these guys are wrestling outside of Mexico, Guadalajara was one of the places that they would constantly go to, Acapulco also, Monterrey, all over the, the, the part, uh, all over Mexico. So unfortunately, we don't get a lot of that information. So we don't really know. Um, you start getting it sporadically. Um, you get it with a handful of magazines. Um, so I think once, I mean, honestly, I think it's going to take going through like thousands of magazines before we finally get more of a clearer understanding of what 
what everybody was doing during the 60s, 70s, and the 80s. Uh, I think the 90s forward is pretty much, you know, there's enough information where you can make a, make a decision on a lot of rust from that time period. But um, before that, before 1990 or before, I would say before 1988 or so, um, it's a little bit harder to have a lot of information on those guys. So, you know, once we go through all those magazines and all that stuff, I think there's going to be, and it doesn't help that, uh, it would help that more people in Mexico would actually do this as well. Lagarde, I'm not sure he's gonna if he's going to get in now. Um, he definitely belongs. I mean, he's probably, Medico Asesino, Carlos Lagarde, and Huracan Ramirez are probably like the three big names that have, that, that should be added next from this uh, Mexico section. Um, but um, because... Honestly, once they don't, if they don't go in through here, they're not going to go through that historical performers list because, you know, there's definitely going to be fewer people voting for them on that list because, you know, they're going to overlook them for the American or the Japanese wrestlers or whoever else that is from a different, um, a more known part of the world. To me, I think Lagarde has to be in. You know, he's also part of one of the great tag teams in Mexican wrestling history uh, with Rene Guajardo. Um, both of them, I mean, he, he, that's probably one of the, the probably like, I would, I, I've not made a list of the greatest tag teams of all time in Mexico, but they have to be in the top 10, at, I mean, top five at least, um, as far as greatest tag teams in Mexican wrestling history. My next pick was Pirata Morgan, definitely a guy I believe belongs in the Hall of Fame. Uh, one of the great wrestlers from the 80s, early 90s. Um, just an awesome wrestler, trios matches, Part of the Infernales, um, also a great rust singles wrestler on his own. So Pirata Morgan has a hair match with Mario Dandy Gallegos, known in Lucha Libre as Jalisco Segundo, um, Jalisco Number Two. This is something that actually also gets mentioned. I mentioned in, in a podcast, a Lucha Classica podcast, is that a lot of people um, when they did the results for um, for the that match, that hair match between Pirata Morgan and Jalisco Segundo. They actually list Jalisco, the first one, which is um, Apollo Jalisco, who's a, a Southern California wrestler um, now. Um, but Mario, um, Jalisco Segundo, who wrestled as uh, Mario Dandy Gallegos, he's the one that wrestled him in the hair match. And what happened in that match, Pirata Morgan goes for a tope suicida to the outside. Jalisco Segundo moves out of the way. Morgan ends up hitting a ringside seat face first basically the 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 armrest he hits it face first and actually nearly loses his eye from that injury he ends up losing it actually but um during that point in time um you see blood from his from his flowing out of his eye he gets back in the ring he actually wins the match against Jalisco Segundo he wins a hair match having no vision from one eye he actually told the story about how in this eye, as it went along, he could still see a little bit, but he started seeing more and more red. And by the time he won the match, um, he was seeing all red in that one eye and was starting to feel faint. And they immediately took him to the hospital. He woke up. Um, he was knocked out. He, was, um, he had suffered, um, pretty much got knocked out from that. And when he woke up, the doctor told him um, he had to take out his eye. Otherwise, he would lose the vision from his other eye. And so... That's how he lost his eye. You know, added the, the eye patch and Pirata Morgan became pure, an, an even bigger deal. The funny thing is, like, when I mentioned this um, on, on the Lucha Classico podcast, uh, Pirata Morgan believed his eye was cursed because twice as a child, he nearly lost um, his eye 
from some injuries that he suffered, some accidents. And he always felt fortunate at that point in time. And, you know, when it finally happened, when he was wrestling, he just figured it was fate that he was going to lose an eye. And, um, you know, to win a hair match like that kind of tells you. But the guy is an outstanding wrestler, um, just an amazing worker. Uh, amazing matches with so many wrestlers, um, Dandy, Vampire. Uh, you know, he had a, a sellout Matt crowd, a sellout in Arena Mexico against Vampiro. Uh, just, I think it was one or two years after the big um, Rio de Jalisco Cien Caras mass match. Those two had a match that 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 drew a, a huge sellout as well. Um, Pirata Morgan, I think he's another person that kind of is becomes a victim of being around for too long. Um, because he started gaining a lot of weight and he wasn't as agile as he was when he was younger, um, became more of a brawler and um, not as great of a worker. But still, if you go from all the 90, the 1980s all the way up to about 93, 94, the guy was an outstanding wrestler. Um, definitely a, a Hall of Fame worthy wrestler. That'd be long. To me, he definitely is a Hall of Famer. Um, and my final pick from this was actually Huracan Ramirez. I mean, honestly, the the guy is one of the all-time great luchadors. Uh, if you look at the evolution of Lucha Libre and pro wrestling, because a lot of the high-flying style has to be credited to, to Mexican wrestling, is even into the United States, because you know a lot of those guys, um, like Chavo Guerrero, um, Ricky Morton, um, Ricky Morton didn't get it as much from Lucha, but I'm sure he watched a lot of guys who maybe were in Lucha League in Mexico. And Chavo Guerrero being one of those guys, um, all the Guerreros um, brought that to the United States. And then you also had Mil Mascaras and all the guys from Mexico. And then you had a lot of um, American wrestlers who went to Mexico who actually took some of that and brought it to the United States. So you get that as well. But a lot of that, the evolution should be credited to Huracan Ramirez as he was one of those early high flyers. Um, him and Rayo de Jalisco Sr. They were definitely the first, two of the early high flyers. They You talk about like them doing topes to the outside or planchas. Um, they were definitely the first two, guy, two guys. Then, you know, later on you had guys like Matematico, you know, and then later on Rey Mysterio Jr. and all these other guys who later on um, took it to a hot, whole new level. But, you know, really, Huracan Ramirez is somebody that definitely, definitely belongs in the Hall of Fame. A star in Mexico. I think what hurts him more than anything else, not that he di he didn't like he wasn't like somebody who kind of. To me, his biggest issue is that there's been so many people who have kind of used his name, that it's kind of diminished him as a star, because there's so many other Huracan Ramirez's, and then there's this you know, it, it just became a big mess. Um, I think that kind of diminishes diminishes it for him. Um, also, the fact that there were so many other guys during his era that were huge stars, like like I said, Rayo de Jalisco, El Santo, Blue Demon, um, Solitario. So you have so many guys who were like huge, huge stars, not just in Mexico but outside of Mexico. But Huracan Ramirez is definitely somebody I I, I had to I had to pick for the Hall of Fame. And you know there were other guys who were included in this that I didn't consider. Um, I couldn't. I didn't vote for. Um, the other candidates from Mexico were Jerry Estrada, La Fiera, Alberto Munoz, and Rito Romero. Um, Romero is somebody that I think is going to require a lot of research on because I think he's somebody that not only was a star in Mexico but also in the United States in Texas. So you know there might be something where it it there might be more of him in Texas or you know in in, in the. It, 
in the western portion of, of the united states as opposed to maybe what you might not get from mexico information on him um, alberto muñoz i think he was somebody that was on his way to becoming an all-time you know maybe not an all-time great but somebody who was a hall of fame worthy wrestler but the injury that he suffered you know really set him back you know fortunately it wasn't anything that was too serious and he was able to continue to wrestle um later became white man to the you know as part of a tag team with black man although that didn't last that long in uwa um but you know to me munoz another guy who was a a, a great um wrestler in in one of the lighter weight classes but um yeah the fact that that happened to him so early in his, at at a point where he was is kind of you know honestly he's kind of like one of those guys who you would probably say maybe he was like in those 10 years 10 or so years where he was already becoming getting ready to become a, a huge star and unfortunately that injury happened and, and he wasn't able to get to that point jerry and jerry estrada and la fiera excellent wrestlers but um to me i kind of view them still kind of not quite there there's guys in the u you know in the other um cat categories that i would actually consider higher than them but um estrada and fiera la fiera also they're kind of guys who were their own worst enemies as far as why they I wouldn't consider them. Um, Estrada had a lot of personal issues, <laughs> you know, that have been talked about and by a lot of people in, in Lucha Libre and with La Fiera. He actually had some issues very as well in the 80s where he would like no show show a lot of Lucha shows. And um, him and Mocho Cota did, had a habit of doing that. Um, if you go through Lucha magazines in the 80s, you constantly hear about how there were promoters who kind of like were going to blacklist them because they just they never they would no show them at, 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 at certain points because they're parting. Um, those were the stories you would hear. Um, you wouldn't hear them like you, you had to read the in between the lines because the, the people reporting weren't necessarily but you would get the hint that they were like really um he was somebody who liked to party so um sometimes he didn't make it to shows unfortunately but they were also the guys that you know i i i would i would have to like you know i did get to watch them a lot and i thought they were excellent wrestlers but like i said in this in this um in this group of uh, of luchadors they're definitely not as high as some of the ones that i mentioned um like i said medico assassino Huracan Ramirez and Carlos Lagarde to me are guys that are no no brainers. Um, Caristico the same. I think he's somebody who's a no brain hall of no brainer hall of famer. Um, Los Brazos, Sangre Chicana, and Pirata Morgan are probably more going to be some wrestlers that I think it's going to like vary on depending on when you watch them and how much you know about them. Um, but they're definitely to me they're definitely hall of fame worthy. Um, and then finally the non wrestling, um, the non wrestlers. I picked five this year, and again, I voted for Dave Brown, Bob Cottle, the Grand Wizard. I voted for all three of them last year, and this year, new to my list were Ted Turner and Mike Tenay. Um, Ted Turner, I did, I think he was on last year's ballot, but I didn't vote for him because at first, you know, I thought, you know, what did you know? What you know, Ted Turner? He's just the billionaire. Uh, but then I realized, you know, really, without him, there. Georgia Championship Wrestling, WCW, the NWA. Um, we wouldn't have gotten all that stuff. And I think that's, that's enough for me to like, you know, he definitely like gave the opportunity for, for wrestling to be on cable television. So that was a huge deal. And definitely, um, you know, plus he opened up his, 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 um, checkbook for, you know, WCW for one of the most amazing runs, the amount of talent that, that WCW had during, 
during from 96 through 98 99 was amazing um and he and if you're going to talk about somebody put his you know put some money into this the promotion he definitely did and he he was able to see a lot of success from that um and then mike tenay i think with mike tenay um not only just as an announcer but also how much he um meant to lucha libre as far as getting people to actually get into lucha libre and and i would say he had the greatest reach of anyone who's covered lucha libre or was a fan of lucha libre as far as trying to attract more fans to it, discover this this style of wrestling um to me he had a far greater opportunity i mean you know they're they're to me they're behind t- t- uh, mike tenay i would say you know dr lucha and the cubs fan are probably the two people that have done a lot for Lucha Libre as far as um, for for English-speaking fans or non, you know, not the non-Mexican fans, um, as far as getting people to, you know, not just learn about Lucha Libre, but to follow it, um, see it, um, a lot of this, you know, but they don't, they don't have the, they don't have the reach. I mean, they don't have a WCW Nitro that, that they could appear on to promote Lucha Libre and talk about and rave about, you know, Rey Mysterio Jr., uh, Juventud Guerrera, Los Vianos, Super Calo, Hector Garza, all these guys, Psychosis, La Parca, um, all these wrestlers that, that the TNA was able to do. And, you know, he tried to do it with Impact as well when, when TNA uh, first started. Um, he wanted to bring in Ricky Marvin and some of these, um, the, the, the luchadors from that were hot during the early 2000s. The, it, it, he he had a lot of ideas that he wanted to do, but unfortunately, um, it's very difficult for a lot. You get a lot of promoters who just they're very stubborn and set in their ways, and and what what worked for them is what they stick to, and unfortunately, they're sometimes very late to the party when it comes to bringing in um, lucha libre, um, different styles or, or different types of wrestlers, and that was unfortunate. But to me, like like I said, I think what Tanay did in WCW was fantastic. He's a, he's a great announcer. And, and honestly, I think that's that's where I, I would consider him that much like Bob Cottle and Dave Brown, um, Dave Brown, very um, he was a big part of what made Memphis wrestling work. There are points and I've been watching a lot of Memphis wrestling and there's a lot of points where that TV show is basically, you know, the star versus a jobber or you might get like got some young guys working against jobbers um, enhancement talent. It's not particularly great matches. But they're able to do the, the the match happens and then they can continue the they they the way the show flows is so well done because not only do they have the 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 the, the matches but they also have the the interviews the promos and then you obviously have Dave Brown and, and Lance Russell's back and forth talking about the show during the matches or during the 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 times that they have the breaks where they're where they're just you know talking about what's coming up or to promote the shows i think he he they do he does a fantastic job much much like lance russell did same goes with bob coddle i mean uh, i i remember bob listening to bob coddle when he would co- um, do nwa's um the not necessarily the syndicated shows not necessarily the big shows and he was usually sometimes doing with um with lance russell i think and but I've been watching a lot of Mid Atlantic and Smoky Mountain wrestling, and there you see a lot of the the what he did really well, not just as a an announcer, but as also as a, a an interviewer and somebody who's continuing to build the storylines. Very much part, you know, the announcers are very much a part of like continuing the 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 progression of storylines because you know they have to remind the fans what 
what's happening with certain wrestlers. And, you know, if you don't have that, odds are you're not going to be able to, like, the fans are just going to lose interest in it because if, if there's nobody else reminding them about it or, or continuing it on, they're just, like I said, they're just, if it doesn't matter to them, why, would, why, why should we care? Um, and Grand Wizard, I think, one of the terrific managers of all time, um, definitely belongs. Also helps that I saw a, an episode of All-Star Wrestling, WWF All-Star Wrestling from the 1970s. And let me just say, these shows are very difficult to watch because they are some of the, 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 the WWF guys are very, very boring, um, very um, slow. It's a very slow um, moving show. And um, it's the atmosphere very old school doesn't I mean it's very different and I've seen some Florida wrestling from the same time period and Georgia championship wrestling and that stuff just blows away what what was going on in WWF Um, that stuff was just rough and there's this one interview where Grand Wizard just is can't you know he's just like his interviews he's just going you know the 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 the, what his promo work is fantastic him just going back and forth with vince mcmahon and you know the his um whoever he's with managing um just fantastic job i think he's he's terrific manager also um i actually saw him i think he was managing the sheik or somebody when in that i like to hurt people movie and i always thought he was fantastic in that as well definitely someone I, i i think belongs um just like I said, this is this was I, I enjoy doing this stuff. I think a lot of people I think even I have done it where I kind of question some of the, the people that are considered for the Hall of Fame, which is fine. But I think if you make the list, there is some someone out there believes you belong in it. And odds are you kind of have to be considered, you know, and there's a lot of guys who maybe don't don't quite make the cut, but they were very good wrestlers and they definitely deserve to get at least some nomination or some consideration for the hall of fame um it really comes down to us the voters to decide who is and isn't a a, you know we believe is a a hall of famer and you know like i said that's that's how that works Uh, it's you know and there's a lot of guys on here like i i want i was i was looking through the list and like i mentioned with sergeant slaughter it really came down to him kerry von erk and and junkyard dog and to me um, Slaughter kind of had the edge just because he was a terrific, terrific, you know, all-around wrestler, and he had a longer career because he didn't, um, you know, he pretty much, you know, he he pretty much stayed intact and you know didn't pass away at a young age. It would have been interesting to see if, um, and I think that would have been the hard thing is that not only did Kerry Von Erich and Junkyard Dog die at a young age, they really didn't have, um, they they never they never really showed that they were going to be able to um, recover from whatever issues they were having health-wise or um, or mentally. So it was going to be something that it was going to be very difficult for them to um, to make it to the, you know, have to, to, re, to re, relive the glory days, so to speak, of their um, the era that they were successful in. Yeah, so th- that's about it for this week. Um, I hope everybody enjoyed this episode. Um, like I said, I wanted to just give out my 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 um, my picks for the Hall of Fame. Um, if you have some thoughts some of who you would consider um, Hall of Fame worthy, by by all means, you could send me. You you could discuss it on Twitter with me. Um, I'm usually I'm usually on there most of the time. <laughs> uh, for whatever reason, during this pandemic, well, you know what it is during this pandemic. Uh, 
the LA sports teams have been doing far better. So uh, we just won the NBA title. The Lakers, uh, they just won them. And yes, I do. I do. When when the Lakers win, I do use we. When they lose, it's them. That's right. That's how it works. But uh, yeah, they, they there's been a lot more sports. So I've been watching a lot of that more often. And um, I haven't watched a lot of CMLL because they're obviously they're on Ticketmaster Live. It's not that I wouldn't pay to watch these shows, although some of them I wouldn't because some of them look. The lineups look awful, but I think the problem I have with Ticketmaster Live's I, uh, what they're doing is that they don't have the VOD option, the video on demand option. And if they did, I would automatically order these and then watch them later. Um, unfortunately, if you order them and you can't watch them, I mean you're pretty much screwed. You lose you lose out on you know the the lower price ones are five dollars and then the the bigger shows are thirteen dollars. So you have to pretty much be home to watch them. And unfortunately, um, for whatever reason, sometimes I just can't watch them because obviously if if the Lakers are playing, I'm gonna watch that. If the Dodgers are playing, I'm gonna watch that. And then there's so much other stuff I watch with. Um, thanks now that I, I I watch a lot of older wrestling right now as well. And there's a lot of lucha that I I watched in the past, but. I'm rewatching a lot of that stuff just because it's it's so much more enjoyable for me to watch that stuff. Um, so that's what I've been doing lately. Uh, we'll be doing more shows. I, I'm trying to figure out how what I'm going to do as far as um, later future shows. I haven't really decided. Obviously, we could do special shows on, on, on different things just because I'm not really watching a lot of current stuff. I'll try to watch some AAA a little more frequently. Uh, that's the hard thing also. Like These shows happen at, at the... the during times when I'm not even home sometimes. So it's like, uh, the good thing is with AAA, at least they put it on YouTube or they're actually putting it on Facebook. So there's a way to watch it. Um, CML is going to be a little bit harder to do. Um, this may end up being a, a lot of shows where I talk more about AAA. Um, but yeah, that's about it for this week. Uh, thanks, everyone. Uh, be sure to visit LuchaWorld.com for all your latest Lucha Libre news and for old school wrestling reviews. Go out and check RetroWrestling.com for added content like podcasts, the Lucha Magazine write-ups, uh, and the Video Vault that's available at the $5 reward tier. Um, check it out at our Patreon at Patreon.com slash LuchaWorld. Also, be sure to check out the Retro Wrestling YouTube channel where you can find more content like the Retro Wrestling Reviews, the Lucha World Podcast, is on there as well in case you would rather listen to it on YouTube. We also have every Saturday, the Stan Hansen Saturday episode where we look back at a Stan Hansen match every week. And there will be more content on there as well, including stuff that I will be doing later on. Check that out. Subscribe. Be sure to like videos when you're on there. Thanks everyone again for listening to this podcast. So long.